Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Psalms and Psalm 39 specifically. Long before Stevie Wonder, God in heaven wrote the first real songs in the key of life. And he did that by way of the Psalms. 150 songs written to God's people for God's people to sing back to God. It's a unique book in the Bible and it's the only book in all of scripture that's literally written for the purpose of us to give these words back to the Lord. We can sing these songs back to God, pray these words back to God. That is literally the reason God gave us the book of Psalms. It was the song book of Israel. And we're spending our time in that book uh, looking at the Psalms throughout this sermon series through the summer. And I hope you'll consider spending some extra time in the Psalms as we spend this time uh, in the, as a church in the Psalms, but even in your own personal Bible reading. A few months leading into the series, I spent some focused time in the Psalms Uh, Probably more so than I ever had before, and I was really surprised at how the Lord used it in my life. Now, I laugh because why am I surprised? I was surprised that I enjoyed it and God's word actually worked. I don't know. I just had never spent that much time looking at the Psalms. I read the Psalms as part of my Bible. read a little bit of the Psalms. But I spent almost exclusively, uh, I I dedicated my Bible reading to the Psalms. And I'll tell you how I did it. I took a, a a clue from Don Whitney who um, I heard him speak one time about how to read the Psalm of the day. And you can read through all the Psalms in a month if you wanted to do it this way. So you take today's date, which is 25th? Good. And you add 30. You read five Psalms a day. So 25 plus 30 is 55, plus 30 is 85, plus 30 is 115, plus 30 is 145. Did I get all that? Yes. Yeah, 80, yeah, 115, 145. Those would be the five Psalms that you would read that day. Then tomorrow would be Psalm 26 plus 30 is 56 plus 30. So you basically take the date and you add 30 and you read five Psalms in a day. And I'm not sure what to do with Psalm 119. That's really long. I would suggest reading that on the 31st day of the month, whatever. But anyway, you add 30 and you read five Psalms a day. And it's taking you throughout different sections of the Psalms each and every day. That might be something that you'd want to spend some time doing, dedicating your Bible reading or adding that to your Bible reading to really spend some time in the Psalms. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that as you read the Psalms, particularly as you spend time in different sections of the Psalms, that the Psalms give expression to something that is wanting to be expressed that's on your heart. You're going to find that as you read the Psalms, that the Lord has in his providence, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, written a psalm that might bring out a cry that's on your heart that you wouldn't have been otherwise able to say yourself. But you could read in the Bible and read in the psalms and say, that's me. That's been on my heart before. Or that's on my heart right now. So I would encourage you to spend some extra time in the Psalms. And uh, once again, I just wanted to remind you that we have this resource in our resource center. This is just a single volume of the Psalms in ESV. It's just a cool, it's no different than the Psalms that are already in your Bible. But you might want to keep one of these on your nightstand and use it before you go to bed or when you rise in the morning or whatever or put it on your coffee table. Just a cool way to read the Psalms and only the Psalms. Makes a nice gift. It might be something you might want to avail yourselves of. We still have a few left in our resource center. So check those out on your way out if that's something that you would be interested in. But hopefully you'll be, uh, you'll spend some extra time in the Psalms as we spend this time in this series. And again, you'll find that as you do this, the Psalms sing songs that are on your heart. Even And especially if the songs are in a minor key, if they're psalms of lament, songs of sadness, of heartache, 53 
of the 150 psalms in your Bible are psalms of lament, 35%. And that's what we're spending our time in this series, and that's what we're spending our time today. So turn open to Psalm 39. If you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? And join me in reading along silently as I read aloud Psalm 39. This is what the word of God says. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hands breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Lord, would you add your blessing to the reading, to the preaching and the hearing of your holy word, Lord. As we cry out to you with David, with the Psalms that you have given us and ask you to give insight to our eyesight, ask you to Open up our minds to understand things that we see in the word and how they might change us each personally and how we might be walking better with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said when we kicked off the series, it's not always easy to understand exactly what was going on when the psalm was originally written. This, in my opinion, is yet again one of those psalms. I don't see anything in the text that specifically points to for sure, with certainty, what was going on in David's life and where we can look back in the Old Testament and see what was happening that brought him about, brought this about. Um, I don't have a firm grasp on that. Uh, but I do want to call to your attention a couple of things. First of all, look in verse uh, 11. Look what he says in verse 11. David says, when you discipline a man... With rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. It appears as if David is being disciplined by God and that that discipline came in the form of everything else that he is talking about uh, throughout this psalm. But specifically, it says in verse 11, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. 
Uh, If you look back in verse 10, he says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. So what David is going through, he's acknowledging not as uh, we're suffering because life is really hard. We're suffering because we're on this side of heaven and we live in a fallen world. He's saying, I'm suffering right now because the Lord is disciplining me. I'm suffering right now because the Lord's hand of hostility is on me and he's disciplining me because I'm one of his children. That's what he's saying. That's the kind of suffering, the kind of lamenting that David is doing here. What it's for, why God is trying to get his attention, exactly what season of life David was in at this time, I don't know for sure, but I know he is being disciplined. And if you look at verse 1, at the beginning of the psalm, one of the first things he says is, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. And it seems like sometimes, something that I wanted to point out to you is this. The first point, sometimes the best thing to do to gain a proper perspective on what is going on in our lives is to keep silent. Sometimes the best thing that we can do to gain a proper perspective, honestly, is to keep silent. That's what David does here. Look at verse 1. First thing he does is he said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. Now, it seems as if he's kind of like free riding here. Of course, under the inspiration of the Lord, he is free riding because he later on cries out to the Lord that we'll see in verse four when he says, oh, Lord, then he's actually praying. But here he's free riding and he's giving he's giving time. He's silently giving time as he's writing this psalm talking about what he has said and what he has promised before. He said, you know, I've said before, I will guard my ways that I may not sin. It's like he is talking himself into it. He is thinking aloud, if you will, or thinking through his pen. And I don't know if you're anything like that, but I can really relate to that. There are some times where I could be going through a really difficult season in life, and I have to remind myself of very basic things. I have to remind myself of very basic things. Sometimes, even though I know the Lord and I know he loves me and I know that I love him, I can sometimes find myself functioning, at least in part, as an atheist. Feeling as if God has abandoned me or I'm all alone in this trial or what's going to happen or things are out of control. So I have to kind of just, okay, I have to just be quiet, focus on what I know, Focus on not what I feel, but on what is real and say, okay, what, what is truth? How do I meditate on the things that are true? David here is reminding himself, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin. It's almost like he has to remind himself, okay, I do give a care. I do care that I don't sin. I said I will not sin and I'm going to do my best not to sin. And then he specifically goes on to talk about how he was guarding himself, what he's guarding against. I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Don't miss that. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. We don't put a muzzle on goldfish. We don't put a muzzle on gerbils. We don't put a muzzle on cats. Do we put a muzzle on cats? We kind of should. No offense. Just stop. My sermon. We put a muzzle on things that we think could cause us great harm. 
You put a muzzle on a dog, not because it looks cute or just for safety. You put a muzzle on a dog that you think is going to bite and you think is going to cause harm to a person. Friends, it's no accident that David, when penning this psalm, says, I'm going to guard my tongue with a muzzle. Not I'm just going to put my finger over my lips. But he is that well aware of the damage that his tongue can cause, the lies that his tongue can speak. And he realizes he's in this place of pressure and suffering and a time that's not easy for him. And he says, you know what? It would probably best if the first thing that I do is say like nothing at all. If I just keep silent. Because sometimes the best thing that we can do when we're going through a time of trouble is to just keep silent. I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle is what he says. He seems to be reminding himself that he's resolved to care about these things. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We live in days that are evil. We live in days that are set against us. We live in days that are on this side of heaven and in the fallen world. We need to watch how we walk so that we can make the best use of the time. But it's a reminder that could only come if he stayed quiet long enough for the thought to come to mind. You have to understand, the reminder that he's getting here is only coming because he's been quiet long enough for that thought to come to mind. Because he guarded his tongue. Before, because before he started telling everybody about how bad life is, he thought, you know what I should do? I should pause. David knows his state of mind is a fragile one. He, he knows he's not thinking straight, so he purposes to keep silent lest he sin with his tongue. Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Psalm 12 verses 3 and 4 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. With our lips, uh, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Meaning I've got something to say. Who can top this? Kind of chest bumping our way through life because we know what to say. We have the right word. We have the answer. Sometimes the best thing that we can do in our life when going through a trying time is to really keep our mouth shut and trust in the Lord. And don't get me wrong. There's a time to speak. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to talk to each other, bounce things off each other, pray for one another like James 5 tells us to do. But sometimes the first thing we need to do is to just pause. Keep your finger in Psalm 39 and flip over to James chapter 3. Turn to James chapter 3. Take a look at verse 2. The word of God says this. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. Do you understand what that text means? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. What he's basically saying is, look. If you can tame this, if you can tame your tongue, it's all, it's all downhill from there. You can get this thing under control. If you're able to tame what you say, have control over your tongue or what you don't say, 
Everything else is kind of small change. That's how hard it is for us to tame our tongues. That if we tame our tongues, if we can get this under control, everything else should be easier for us to control. Look at again, verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we uh, put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large, yet they're driven by strong winds, but are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So you see the word picture that's being painted there. It might be little, but it's got a lot of control. Uh, A bit that we put into a horse's mouth might be little, but it's what you depend upon basically to steer the horse, to control the horse as best as possible. A rudder is really small compared to a mighty ship, but it's what's going to direct the direction of that ship where it goes. It's driven by the wind. This is going to steer it, this little rudder that hangs off the back of a ship. We might have a whole body, but this tongue... This mouth, our speech, is very, very powerful. It could be used for great good or for great evil. And James seems to be warning us more of the great evil that it could be used for. Look at the end of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Meaning, it just takes a spark, right? Can't start a fire without a spark. It just takes a spark, but then it could start a whole blaze, a whole forest fire. That's what our tongue can be like. Just a word, just a little statement, but it could be used for great harm. I want to give you two things that I think are helpful to remember when it comes to the need to guard our tongues, particularly and especially during times of trouble, times of trial, times of tribulation. They're not in your outline, but you may want to write them down or just nod as I say them. I'm not quoting scriptures, but I think what I'm telling you is scriptural. And that is this. First, wisdom rarely comes quickly. Wisdom rarely comes quickly. Uh, Throughout the Bible, if you were to do just a survey of the scriptures that talk about wisdom, um, it comes as a result of time spent with the Lord. It comes as a result of waiting on him, waiting on him to show us exactly how we should act, how we should act in a way that is most pleasing to him. Now, don't get, me, don't get this confused with knowledge. You can learn a lot of things really quickly nowadays. Uh, we have information at our fingertips that enables us to know things and in turn do things in rather short order. Um, just the other day, two days ago, uh, one of my children, <coughs> who's... I don't want to embarrass him. His name is unimportant, but it reminds with, it rhymes with Ponathan. Uh, dropped a gallon of milk in our garage. A gallon of milk in our unair-conditioned garage. And I don't know about you, I think milk runs faster than other liquids when they're, when they're, when they're spilled. Maybe it's just me. It just seems, maybe it's just because it's white and it's against a gray floor. It's just like, <laughs> and it just kind of takes over. Like, it just is like, no, just all over. And you're trying to control it. Drop milk in the garage. So we cleaned it up. It's fine. It happens. Um, and then there, there's a memory that's left in the garage of that incident, if you know what I'm saying. 
a memory that strikes you as you walk into the garage, particularly on that warm day in a garage that is not terribly well ventilated when the doors are shut. So we tried scrubbing it. We used soap, water, brought on the hose, sprayed the water out, and that got the milk out. Didn't exactly get the memory out. What do you think we did next? How do you think we figured out how to get the smell of milk out of a garage? What do you think we did? We Googled it. Surely someone else has asked this question before. This is not the first time this has happened. It's the first time it's happened for us. Not the first time it's happened in just, you know, antiquity. I mean, I'm sure this has happened before. And someone, for some reason, posted a blog post about it. Lo and behold, they did. A little mixture of uh, vinegar, I think, and water. Make some solution. Throw it down on the ground. Let it sit there for a little. Scrub it. And it worked. Mostly. I don't know if it's just in my head. I still think I smell a little, just, just, just a little, but it worked mostly. So we got answers. We got knowledge. We got facts fairly quickly. It did not take a lot of time. That's knowledge. Now we know. Now we know how to, have that, how to handle that situation if it happens again. Wisdom will play a part as to whether or not we ask the cherub to ever get a gallon of milk from the garage again. Wisdom will play a part as to how we handle this situation Again, or how I teach him to carry the milk, or that I send his older brother instead of him until he gets bigger, or whether or not we keep milk in the garage, in the refrigerator, uh, down there ever again. Wisdom comes over time. It doesn't come quickly. That's a very silly example. But in the beginning, you have knowledge. You have facts. You know how to handle it. But now, what do we do as a result of that? Well, that doesn't come quickly. That takes time. We're going to think about that. We're going to think about what we learned from the situation, and we'll hopefully walk better in the future. Wisdom rarely comes quickly. It comes as a result of thinking, of pondering, of musing, of considering what happened and how we can learn from it. And that typically takes time. It may not take decades, but it just doesn't come instantaneously. Siri doesn't have wisdom. She's got facts. Google has a lot of information, not wisdom. Wisdom comes as a result of you putting the facts together saying, now we know, so now what ought we do? Wisdom rarely comes quickly. Secondly, God doesn't shout. God doesn't shout. And what I mean by that is while God surely can communicate in any way that he wants to, it's not typically with a shout. He takes time and he typically opens our eyes to things as we spend unhurried time with him in his word, whether at a church service or on your own, as you spend that time with the Lord, the Lord reveals to you things that you need to know. The Lord uses people in our lives. He uses experiences. He uses, he uses circumstances. And most importantly, he has spoken to us and continues to speak to us through his word. And since wisdom rarely comes quickly, and since God is not in the habit of shouting, we do well to do what David does here Silent ourselves, silence ourselves, guard our mouth, particularly and especially when we find ourselves in a time of trial, to gain a a, a proper perspective when we're in a fragile state of mind. The good news is James 1 and verse 5 says, if we lack wisdom, we can ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And that's what David does in this psalm. He lacks wisdom. He lacks perspective, understanding. But the first thing he does is keep quiet. 
The first thing he does is keep quiet. He calls to his mind what he's promised to do. If you look in Psalm 39 and verses 1 and following, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle since I know it could be that dangerous. Look at verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. Verse 3. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, as I thought, the fire burned. Now, my heart became hot within me. That could mean he just couldn't take it anymore and he was reaching a boiling point and he just had to speak to the Lord. But you know what else it could also mean? It could also mean that as a result of the time that he spent silent, as a result of the time that he spent with the Lord, that the Lord took his cold heart and actually made it warm. That the Lord did something in his heart. It changed the way he looked at the situation. And therefore he cries out to God differently in verse 4 than he would have if he did that cry right immediately in verse 1. As a result of the time that he spent quiet, musing, thinking. In verse 4, he doesn't say, take this away from me. I can't handle it anymore. He doesn't say, restore to me the things that have been taken from me. Make my life better. Make my life easier. But now as a result of the time that he spent quietly thinking, reflecting, when he goes to the Lord, look at what he asks for in verse 4. He says, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. See, we can surmise as we look at verse 11. When it says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Something has been consumed and taken away from him that is dear to him. We're not going to speculate or take the time to talk about what that might be. But suffice it to say that as a result of the discipline of God, something has been taken away from David. And instead of David just praying that that thing be returned, that that thing come back, which wouldn't have been wrong. David, as a result of his time being quiet, his time guarding his mouth, the first thing that he prays for is that God would let him know the measure of his days and how fleeting he is. In other words, Lord, let me understand how small I am, how small my life is compared to eternity. Because when we consider that, then we realize that which we've lost or that which happens in this life really is small by comparison to the grander things of eternity. His first prayer is that he would gain perspective. And that that perspective would get him to understand just how fleeting he is, how quickly passing he is. And sometimes it's good to be reminded of how short our earthly life really is. That's the fruit of his silence. That's the fruit of his waiting, his contemplating. He asked God to remind him of the brevity of life. And that's a good place to be. I think the more we realize just how short our life is, the the better we are. Contemplating the brevity of our life should bring about great things in our lives. In fact, take a look at the psalm. You'll notice there's two selahs in this psalm. Look in Psalm 39. There's two selahs, one after verse 5 and one after verse 11. Now, We said this before, but I'll remind you that Selah is an opportunity for us to be quiet, pause, and think about it. That's what a Selah means. Pause, think about what was just said. Look at where it's placed by God's providence in this psalm. It's right after verse 5, where it says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. 
It's right after verse 11. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. The two things that the Lord would accentuate and emphasize in this psalm is for us to really stop and think about the fact that all of mankind is as a mere breath. The brevity of life is something that the Lord would really have us reflect upon as we look at this psalm. Now, I found, and it's in your outline, four lessons learned from the brevity of life. Now, there could be 24 or 1,004, but we're going to look at these four lessons that, we can, that can be learned from the brevity of life. The first one is that life is not just short, but life is too short. Life is too short. Look at verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. Life is short. Uh, Look at verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few hands breaths. A hands breath is a small unit of measurement that is the breath of one's hand. Tip of the middle finger to the back of the palm. And what he is saying there is my whole life, my whole life, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. In your eyes, you just hold it in the palm of your hand. He is being reminded just how short his life is. Just how brief his time here is on earth. Look at the end of verse 5. My lifetime is as nothing before you. That doesn't mean, oh Lord, I am a nothing to you. But my lifetime, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. But that the whole of our lives is literally nothing before the Lord who is outside the realms of time and space. Like when somebody lives to be 70, 80, 90, or even a, they, they get into the triple digits. They live to be 100 years old. We are really wowed by that. We think of the things that could have taken place over the course of their life. Somebody who was 100 this year was born in 1917. What have they seen? The amount of things, the amount of history that has unfolded before their very eyes that they've lived through, the stories they could tell would be unbelievable. It's really not that big a deal for someone who has no beginning and no end. It's unbelievable to me who has a very, (laughs) a defined beginning and has yet an end to my life on earth. So a hundred years blows my mind. With God, it's just, it fits right about here. That's about it. And David's helped to be reminded of this fact. He says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. He's not, oh Lord, I'm a nothing. I'm a little nothing. No, no, no. My lifetime is really not a big deal to you. The length of time that I have. But life is not just short, but I would also say it's too short. Keep your finger in Psalm 39 and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Two books forward. Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Take a look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Look at this. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. Now, this isn't our primary text, but a couple of things we could take, take away from this. It's God's gift to man that we would enjoy the world that he has given us. Um, God has given us all things richly to be enjoyed, 1 Timothy chapter 6. There's, God has given us things to enjoy in this life. We do that to the glory of God. We eat and drink and play and enjoy the life that he's given us to the glory of God. But here's the thing. Look at verse 11. You see where it says, he has put eternity into man's heart. That's an important phrase. What I want us to realize from that is this. You've been hardwired for forever. You've been hardwired for eternity. Perhaps you've had a situation in your life where you have anticipated for a certain period of time the passing of someone you know, the passing of someone you love. You know that death is coming. They've been suffering for a while, and you know it won't be long now. It won't be long now. Maybe you've gathered together to visit the person. It won't be long now. And then finally, the person does, does pass. Now, whenever you hear the news of someone passing, even if you've seen it coming, there's never a time where you're just like, well, yeah, we've been talking about this for three weeks, so it just happened. I mean, duh. Even when you see it coming, it takes a little bit of wind out of you, doesn't it? Even when you see the death of a loved one coming or the death of a friend coming, you, you know they've been, even when they're a believer and you're happy and they're in a better place and they're no longer suffering, you're still sad. You're still a little shocked. It still hits you in the gut a little bit. It still takes your breath away. They're going to pass. They're going to pass. Even if you hope they pass because they're suffering and they love the Lord and they're going to be with him forever. And they finally do. Your first reaction is still Raise your hand if you understand what I'm talking about. You're hardwired for forever. You weren't meant to die. We can't forget that. It just takes up a very small part of the scriptures, like the first two chapters of the entire Bible. But God made us to live with him forever. That's been hardwired into us. He's placed eternity into our hearts. Therefore, anything that stands in the way of, eternally, of, of eternity just doesn't sit right with us. Life is not just short, but it always seems too short. There's always like, oh, so soon. Oh, wow. Oh, but we were hardwired for forever. This just doesn't seem right. That's why even when we say it won't be long now, it won't be long now, even when we're relieved, it still takes a little bit out of us. Throughout the scriptures, the entirety of life is referred to in seemingly small, insignificant terms. James 4, 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The brevity of life helps us to be inspired to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. Why? Because we just have a very short time to do it in. It helps us want to make the most of our days because we don't know when those days will end. We know that the clock is ticking and we don't know how much time we have left in our lives to be pleasing to the Lord. So since we don't know when the clock is going to stop, yet we know that one day it will, we make the best use of the time. 
knowing that the time will not go forever. Life is too short. But secondly, look at verses 5 and following. Life is fragile. Life is really fragile. Um, Verse 5 says, My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a breath. And there's that first Selah. A man goes about as a shadow. Think of these word pictures that that the Lord has inspired David to pen for us to read today. Uh, How how, how long does a breath last? Not long. Uh, You breathe it in, you breathe it out. Done. You do it over and over again. Done. It's just a breath. When the weather's cold, you breathe it out and you see the mist, but then it fades. It's done. He's saying, my whole life is like a, it's just like a breath. A shadow that you see, a shadow that's made by the sun is going to move and eventually fade. A shadow that's made by lights, the lights will burn out. Like, it's not going to last forever. Look at these words that he uses before us. They remind us that life is fragile. The only thing constant is change. They remind us that the healthiest person among us could be dead before the sermon is over. And again, that's not fear-mongering. Oh, here he goes. He's going to tell us we're all going to die. You are going to die. This is called reality. It's not fear-mongering. It's not a scare tactic. I'm just telling you the truth, the truth that you knew coming in here, but it, it bears repeating, and it's good to be reminded of. The healthiest person among us could be dead by nightfall. Our lives are very, very fragile. It doesn't take much to end us. People fall and hit their heads on the side of a pool and enter into comas. Uh, People lay down because they have a headache and die of a brain aneurysm. Do you know how many explosions and combustion and flammable fluids and vapors exist mere feet from your feet as you go anywhere in in a car? We're, We're fragile people. It doesn't really take much to take us out. Our lives are fragile. And as prepared as you can be, as much as you can protect yourself, as much as you can ready yourself, and you do well in doing that, we're still pretty fragile people when it comes to how easily our lives can be taken from us. And the list goes on and on and on. People drop dead every year from shoveling snow. I mean, we're just fragile human beings. Now, I'm not suggesting you obsess over these things. You say, well, you just gave us like six examples. It sounds kind of morbid. Yeah, but I'm not... There's a point. I'm not suggesting you, you obsess over these things. Not at all. You may think they're rather morbid things to think about. And in a sense, they are. But here's what I'm saying. If you don't think about them, you're going to make your plans. You're going to live your life as if there is no end. If you don't think about the brevity of life, you will live your life as if there is no end. As if there's no end in sight. As if it's just going to go on and on and on. And James 4.16 says that's actually boasting. When we don't take into consideration that the Lord is in charge. When we don't take into consideration that our life is short. And we just say, yeah, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. God's word tells us that's boasting and all such boasting is actually evil. What about you? How aware are you of the fact that your life is going to end? How aware of you of the fact that your life will end at some point and you will then enter into eternity? And that is application for Christian and non-Christian alike. For those of us who love and know the Lord, 
We want to make the most of the time that the Lord has given us. I have come to realize in recent years that when I get to the end of my life, to some degree, I will have regret. I think it's a part of life. I think you'll look back on your life and wish you could have done something a little differently. I think you'll wish you had a little more time to have done something again or, or just a little more time. As ready as you could be to go to heaven, you might look back and say, but if I was on earth, I could do this. I could watch that. I could see this marriage. I could see this, this whatever. Regret is a part of life. And so by reminding ourselves that our lives are brief, we try to make wise decisions that are honoring to the Lord so that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to him. Not perfectly, but pleasing. Not sinless, but hopefully sinning less. It's the brevity of life that is a major catapult, a major impetus to us to living our lives in a way that are pleasing to him. Our lives are fragile. And knowing that at any time the Lord could return or that any time you could depart makes you live your life in a very, very different way. Life is short. Actually, too short. Um, Our lives are not only short, but they're fragile. And that finally leads us to what the psalmist David realizes in verse 7. Where he says, now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My life is as a breath. It's like a shadow. It's constantly changing. It's really short. For what do I wait? He answers his own question. My hope is in you. My hope is in you. It's not in anything that's here. But it's firmly rooted in the heavens. It's firmly rooted in something that goes beyond my life here and now. Now. Listen, oftentimes when we say that, people kind of get the impression, particularly people outside in the world, that we just hide behind our Bibles and all we, I'm going to need those. We hide behind our Bibles and all we care about is heaven. All we care about is eternity. We don't care about anything that goes on in this life because we just know that what's the worst thing that could happen to us? We'll die and then we'll go to heaven. It's like a win-win. That's not what's being said here. We really do give a care about our lives. The, the, the beginning of this psalm talks about how much David cares about how he lives his life during this time. I've said to, to the Lord that I'm going to be pleasing. I'm going to put a guard over my mouth. I care about what I do here and now. But caring about something and putting your hope there are two different things. I care about how I work. I care about how I raise my kids. I care about how I do, with the, how I do uh, things with money that are good for the Lord and honorable to him. I care about the life that the Lord has given me. My hope is in none of them. When I'm weak, when I'm falling on my knees because I don't understand what's going on in my life and I'm stressed out beyond belief, I don't look at my portfolio. I don't look at my kids. I don't look at my marriage. I don't look at things that are passing because that's a crapshoot. Those can be going either way. Some days I can look at those things and be really encouraged. Other days, it could just be like, punch me in the face. But when I look to the Lord who is never changing always good, loves me, likes me, and is for me, my hope is stirred and encouraged when I look not here, but there. 
when my eyes are turned not horizontally but vertically to the Lord. And that's what happens with here, right here in this psalm. Verse 7, now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. Look at verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Whatever he's going through, he knows this is coming from the Lord. I'm not complaining. I've been mute. I'm not opening up my mouth. I know it is you who have done it. But look at what he prays next. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Another reminder. Here is David saying, you're doing this. You love me. My hope is in you. Please stop. That's what he's saying. My hope is in you. You're doing this. You're disciplining me. You're teaching me something. He's acknowledging it. He's grateful for the Lord's favor. Yet in the very same breath says, it really hurts like a lot. What you need to teach me, I really hope it goes quickly. Please stop. Remove your stroke from me. It's a very honest prayer. I see your love for me. I'm not being smitten. I'm being loved. I'm being disciplined. Could you stop? You can be, as we looked at from a sermon a couple of months ago, thankful in a circumstance, yet not thankful for the circumstance. You can be thankful in it, knowing God's doing something good, knowing that you don't know how it's going to end, but God's for you. He's going to teach you something. He's going to bring something good about this, but still say, Lord, I, I really hope you do it like yesterday, because this is really hard. It's not disingenuous to say, thank you for teaching me. Thank you for loving me enough to discipline me. I really hope it ends soon. This is really hard. I'm pretty weak. It's like sometimes if you discipline your children, and particularly if you do that physically, and they know it's coming, they ask a question going into it. Does anybody have a guess as to what that question might be? How many? My kids know I love them, and they hope it's over fast. But they still know I love them. But when they say how many, I've never asked them, but I feel like they're hoping the number's low because it's painful. God's our daddy. He disciplines those whom he loves. And when we sense the disciplining hand of God at work in our lives, just like a kid looking to his father saying, I know you love me. How many? And I hope this ends soon. David says, remove your stroke from me. Which leads us to remember, we can only hope in Christ. We only hope in Christ. David says in verse 10, 
I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. He's like, I'm done. When you discipline a man, you don't mess around. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. He reminds him again, surely all mankind is a mere breath. God in his love and his wisdom loves us enough to consume that which is dear to us if it's more dear to us than the Lord. Takes it away. Like a moth takes away clothing. He just takes it away. Just eats at it. Takes it away. Now, don't go reading into that, right? You hear someone gets a flat tire on their way home. You're like, wow, someone has a car idle. Doesn't mean that every little thing, right? We don't want to, not every little thing means that. But there are some times, if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, that you know that the Lord has used something to get your attention, to call your attention to something. And it may not even be that you can exactly logically connect the dots, but you're like, this trial has befallen me, and you know what? I know it's not connected to the thing that the Lord is calling to my mind, but God used that to make me aware of this. That's the discipline of the Lord, the kind, loving, painful, worthwhile discipline of the Lord. And the brevity of our lives and the fragility of our lives drive us to live dependently upon God. We can only hope in Christ. And we can only find help in Christ. And I'm going to skip ahead. We can only find help in Christ. There, that's the other point. But there's something else I want to say before we close. If you look at what David prays right after he says, my hope is in you. Look at verse 8. He doesn't say in verse 7, now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Make it, just make it all better. He does pray that later. Please stop. It hurts, right? We see that later. Please stop. Remove your stroke from me. I've been spent. But the first thing he prays is that he be delivered from his transgressions. The first, he says, you know what? My hope is in you. I have a very short life. Uh, compared to the grand scheme of things, that which I'm going through is, 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 is not that big of a deal. My hope is in you. So deliver me from my transgressions. Take me away from the sin that I need to be taken away from. And there's a a twofold application there that I would like to bring to our attention as we close. That first and foremost, when we're wondering what the measure of our days is, what the meaning of life is, we should remember that the meaning of our life right here on earth, which does matter a lot, even if we have the promise of heaven, we're not just fatalist. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to die and go to heaven. That's not how we live. That's not how people live throughout church history. Not at all. We don't just hide behind our Bibles, but our goal is to live our lives here in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Not perfect. That's later, but pleasing, pleasing. Now we'll get perfect later, but we want to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. Everything that I want to do, whether it's a choice that I make with money or time or children or marriage or whatever, should have the, the, the question in my mind, how can I please the Lord in this? There's always a way to please the Lord in this. There's got to be one, there's got to be a choice that I have that would be pleasing to God as I make this financial decision, as I make this time decision, as I make this social decision. It's got, there's got to be a way that I can be pleasing to the Lord. And one of the biggest ways to be pleasing to the Lord is for us to put off sin, for us to be delivered from our transgressions. That's what, that's what David prays in verse 8. Deliver me from my transgressions. I don't want to be the scorn of the fool. 
Take it away from me. Take the sin away. Deliver me. But see, here's the other thing. And this is what I meant by the twofold application that I wanted to leave you with. You might be sitting here thinking about the brevity of life and thinking about how short it is. You might be thinking about that because you're older. You might be thinking about that because you're very young and you've never thought about it. I don't know why, but it's come to your mind that your life is short. Perhaps you've been struck by the fact that our whole, our whole lives are just a breath. 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Watch. I'm going to illustrate it for you. But that's like it. You might be really struck by the fact that, not in a scare tactic way, not in a fear-mongering way, but just the fact is that everyone in here is going to die someday, young and old. You might be struck by that fact, and you might be thinking about eternity knowing that you're not like David, Because you can't pray, my hope is in you, because your hope is not in Christ. You're as lost as the day is long, and you've placed your hope in something else. When you start thinking about the brevity of life and the fragility of life, you think of other things other than the Lord. Something else to bring you peace. Something else to bring you calmness. Something else to distract you. Here's what I'm saying. It's in my notes, but I ran out of time. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 2, you'll see Paul saying that the things that are spiritual can only be discerned by spiritual people. We can't discern spiritual truths on our own. There's no amount of studying, no amount of reading, no amount of talking to other people that you can do that, that, you can, that can help you gain an understanding of spiritual things. So here's, here's what I'm saying. I'm not like, ooh, but I'm a little like, ooh. Because if, if, if you're understanding something that's spiritual right now, look at me. You need to lean into that. If the Lord is tapping you on the shoulder, because he doesn't shout, he's getting your attention by the preaching of his word, he's calling something to your, to your mind, and you're realizing that life is short, that the little life you live is really fragile, and that your only hope is in Christ, your only help is in Christ. Look at me. That's not happening because I just made some clever point. That's God. That's not Peter. That's not church. That's not voice being amplified. God. That's God doing that. God calls your attention to these things. God wakes these things up in your mind. God shows you truth. God offers you help. God offers you hope. Lean into that. Take that seriously. If you're thinking about those things and you think the Lord is opening your eyes to some truth that you weren't thinking about when you walked in here and you're realizing that your life is short and your life is fragile and that your life apart from Christ because it's going to end like that one day is fairly meaningless and you like the psalmist David is saying, what is the measure of my days? How do I assess life? How, How do I measure my life? then you need to realize that the only person worth giving your life to, the only hope that you can have is in Jesus Christ. Christ who died on the cross for sinners like you 
and like me. Christ, who rose from the grave to give us victory over that end of life. Remember we said life is going to end? It's going to end kind of. (laughs) But then there's eternity, and God can give you victory and hope and help in eternity just by you placing your trust in him, by you looking to Christ. And there's no magic words. There's no magic mecca, mecca, high, mecca, none of that. You don't have to know some certain perfect prayer to pray. You look to God and say, I believe. I believe, just what we sang before, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you died on the cross for sinners like me. I'm putting all my eggs in that one basket. I'm saying with the psalmist, my hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. And you can have the hope that goes beyond this life. You can realize that your life is fragile but that you have another life coming that is steadfast and sure, not built upon sand, but built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, you can realize that you can put your hope in Jesus Christ now and forever, and that the measure of your days can be the same as the measure of Christ's days, living in a way that is honoring to the Lord now and forever. Father in heaven, we ask that you would add your blessing to the the preaching of your word. Lord, it is my sincere hope and prayer that as I go silent, as I say amen, that you, Lord, as only you can, would continue to preach your word in the hearts and minds of your people. Preach on. Speak, O Lord. Call verses to mind. Call truth to mind. Move in the hearts of your people. Draw them nigh unto you. Give them hearts of flesh that need them, replacing hearts of stone. Give a love for you that didn't previously exist. Give a a passion to please you that didn't previously exist. May people today, even now, say, my hope is in you who have never said that before. And for those of us who love you and know you, Oh, God in heaven, would you cause us to reflect upon the life that you've given us now, to live a life that is pleasing to you, and to do this for as many days, be they many or few, that you give us on this earth. We long to fulfill our meaning, our purpose in life, which is to be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.